0: everyone, And welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Do you have tea today or no? Um I have tea brewing. It's not here, perfect. But... Perfect. What is it when it is finished brewing?
1: Uh it's just uh basic chamom- chamomile tea. I've never been
0: able to get on with chamomile. Really? Yeah. Just something about the flavor is not not for me.
1: I mean, I don't drink it very often. It's definitely not like
0: mm-hmm. a, a
1: like a I want this type of, but but if I don't know if you can tell, and I don't know if people over the well uh, over the recording we'll be able to really hear it but i sound very hoarse a bit sore you don't you don't sound your best but usually when i have a sore throat because i've overused it that's usually when i bring out the chamomile because then i just pour a bunch of honey and then put uh ginger in it and that is supposed to be the honey and ginger good. i
0: can absolutely get behind i have not tried mixing those with chamomile i'm going to have to give it a go because
1: that, should try that actually
0: sounds that sounds pretty good and actually it, it's like a
1: Chamomile mixed with lavender, and I don't know if that makes a difference, but yeah, it's like chamomile lavender tea, and it's like, okay, this one's actually really good, but um, yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I have
0: have a, I have a tropical green tea today,
1: oh tropical, which tastes
0: surprisingly pineapple. It's quite, it's quite tasty. I and not was not expecting pineapple in the flavor profile, but no, okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I can get behind that. Uh, do you have any snacks today? I don't have snacks today, but it's almost a foregone conclusion that at some point, a small child will bring me something for themselves, but they normally bring me something to share as well. So who knows what I'll end up eating as we go. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? Are you snacking today or no? Um, yeah, I have a
1: bit of this delicious mint chocolate bar that I saved from when I was in Finland so it's I don't I think it's I don't know if it's like a Finnish brand or Scandinavian or whatever but it's Scandinavian
0: is, chocolate is amazing
1: it it is like so, one of I the mean, great like unsung
0: best. heroes of European culinary
1: experiences I mean people kind of rag on Scandinavia but after traveling through Scandinavia I'm like man they have some good ass food um yeah. it's it's yeah, you absolutely know, Although some, some freaked me out because, you know, I got to Finland and people were like, oh, you have to try their delicacies. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, um bear, elk
0: and moose or something. And I was like, oh, oh. OK.
1: Uh, elk and dry. moose I can
0: definitely get behind. Bear is not something I was expecting.
1: Yeah, me neither. I was kind of shocked and uh luckily my my finnish friend who was hosting me was like it's very dry i don't like it you probably won't if you don't like dry meat and i was like no i don't like dry meat so she was like we could skip that and why don't you just try like reindeer instead and i was like sure and so i tried the reindeer and it was uh you know i i just had to look past the fact i was like no i'm not eating rudolph and his friends i'm just eating a random reindeer so yeah anyway um yeah it was a great uh mint chocolate thing and it's delicious delightful Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it really is it really is and i was i'm proud of myself i like saved it because i knew so when i was in sweden i i like got all into the culture of having fika which is like their coffee snack break and Mm -hmm. so yeah I've, i've saved it now for like over a month now and i've only limited myself to like one or two pieces for fika
0: that's excellent
1: Thank you. That is some good self-control. Thank
0: you. It was really hard, but thank you. But we are going through The Women of Troy. We just finished going over Silence of the Girls. Women of Troy is the sequel. And, well, we've gone up to chapter 18. And I did, yes. I, did I did, cheat. I did read half of chapter 18. And then I was like, no, Megan, Stop. Stop because this is next time you have to, you have to stop. We have to talk to Lexi about this first, um, but yes. So, uh, anyway, do you want to start us off maybe with a, a,
1: a summary? Cause I always love your, yeah. your summaries of, of what we've
0: read. Absolutely. So as we have probably come to expect through the course of reading Pat Barker's work, it is brutal and sad, very sad, um, beautifully written um has some takes and perspectives that i very much appreciate and that we have not really seen before and it opens with pyrrhus in the the trojan horse and kind of narrates the whole sack of troy and then cuts to briseis and you kind of catch up catch up with her like it's not quite the same as sitting and having a cup of tea with an old friend but it is nice to like see what she's been up to and it carries on really where silence of the girls left off the greek army is excuse me the greek army is standard oh my god the greek army is stranded on the beach of troy the wind is unfavorable which surprises absolutely no one i'm sure the camp is splintering into factions and clan-based rivalries are kind of coming to the fore and it's a very dangerous place for women to be I was j- dangerous for women beforehand, but now there's kind of a breakdown of law and order. It's even more dangerous than it was previously. So you get all of that stuff going on. And we read through, I think I said earlier, we read through to chapter 18 and the main thing that has happened that is kind of driving the plot at the moment is that um, Priam's body, Pyrrhus' desecrated it like like Achilles did Hector, and his body is just being left on the beach unburied, which, if you know anything about uh, Greek ancient Greek culture, that is a bad thing. His spirit will be wandering and unable to rest because he hasn't been buried, the proper rites haven't been performed, and someone, who knows who, someone has tried to bury the body, and this is a huge, huge problem, and Pyrrhus is super pissed, as you can expect a 16-year-old, uh with some severe daddy issues to be super pissed so we're kind of getting into the the interrogation part of the the book with him trying to work out who did that and we know who did it because um one of the the conversations that Briseis has with one of the slave girls from Troy Amina They walk past Priam and and, see, I change how I say that. Sorry, I say Priam and I say Priam. And I genuinely have no idea what I'm supposed to be saying because I think this is another cultural thing. I think the Brits say it one way and the Americans say it the other way. And I just kind of get very confused and stuck in the middle. So if you catch me switching between, I am very sorry. I genuinely don't know what I'm doing. Um, But anyway, Amina is, is very upset that Priam has been left unburied. He's her king. And Briseis is also very upset because he was also very kind to her they had a relationship in silence of the girls but she's like we we can't do shits like absolutely not worth the risk to our lives because it will definitely be a risk to our lives uh so you know that uh, amina is the one who tried to bury him and that's kind of where chapter 18 leaves off but the um what the the book is doing or has done up to this point has been Briseis going around to all of the different women from Troy, Um, mostly the royal women, obviously, because they're the people she's familiar with, they're the people the reader is familiar with, and trying where she can to offer comfort to them. She's been in their position. She is no longer a slave. If we remember from Science of the Girls, she was married. Um, Achilles married her off quite unceremoniously, but she is married. She is also pregnant with Achilles' child, which is a whole can of worms all by itself so she's now a respectable married greek matron so she has more freedom to go around and check in on all of these different slave women um but she's not i would not term her happy uh which again is is a surprise to absolutely no and i don't think anyone really would be happy in this particular situation so you get as you're going through the story you get glimpses of all of the different women and to hear about their experiences and how they're faring in the Greek camp um and you also get the odd chapter here and there from a man's perspective all of the like the main story is Briseis but then you have the odd man here and there kind of butting in as 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 men sometimes do um I'm gonna get there will be comments I'm sure um But you have Pyrrhus a couple of times. Calchas, the Trojan priest, comes in. Um, And opening, I thought that actually opening the chapter, the chapter opening the book with Pyrrhus was a really interesting choice because I was expecting Briseis from the get-go. And it's not. It's this person inside the Trojan horse. And it takes a couple of paragraphs for you really to work out who this kid is and what the hell he's doing. And um, he is not someone we've seen an awful lot of in previous adaptations. I don't think he turns up absolutely but this is the first time we really hear from him and he clearly has the world's biggest chip on his shoulder and he's feeling very um disrespected and disheartened because he's just a child and he's the son of the great achilles and really he should have his own like songs being written about him but he hasn't done anything worthy of songs yet so he's determined to make the fall of troy his like entry into heroic life so you get him brutally killing priam and doing it very poorly by all accounts he has to try at least twice to cut priam's head uh, cut his throat and, and and kill him and priam like laughs at him which i enjoyed that that did amuse me um yeah so you get you get pyrrhus and then you also get pyrrhus from the perspective perspective You also get Pyrrhus from the perspective of Briseis, which is very interesting because you kind of, you have this peek into Pyrrhus's head, so you know how he views himself, and then you have Briseis narrating what she thinks of him, and the two things are very different. Uh, (laughs) He definitely comes across as a petulant child um, from other perspectives, and he's, he's, it's funny because he's trying his best to fight against that view to remove that um viewpoint from other people and he's just everything he does seemingly just plays into it so that was a very long summary sorry no i mean Lexi, I what fine. do you
1: think <laughs> um yeah i did want to kind of zero in on that opening because um I was gonna ask you if you were just as confused as I, because uh obviously as we've established through this year I, I mostly listen to these audiobooks being read to me which can be great but also a bit distracting if you're like doing something else um because i feel like it goes kind of fast and then you're like wait what did i just miss something so um it might have taken me more than a paragraph to figure out who on earth this what i thought it was odysseus i was literally just like are it is this odysseus like what's going on so yeah so then to to learn that it's pierce i was like
0: oh okay this is weird um yeah it's well, i mean it it I'm, I'm just looking at it now it it doesn't it's a full two paragraphs before you get his name and i i think that's probably de- deliberately
1: done yeah i think it is meant to confuse but i mean it was very well done and i kind of liked seeing from his perspective well you never hear of the people in the horse and so i really like this sort of very graphic description of um like like a perspective i never would have thought about is you know what happens to the guys who are like crammed in this horse hiding when they're trying to like pull it into the city and the fact that she takes the time to be like oh yeah they were being bumped around they were trying to be silent not move have their armor clatter
0: and everyone is super sick. And I was like, The oh. latrine buckets are full because you can't empty them. I was like, that is that is a piece of detail I had never considered before. I, very true. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay. So and
1: if you puke, I mean, y- you can't puke quietly. So I'm kind of like, oh, well, I hope that if they're motion sick, they didn't get sick enough to puke their guts out because they would have been heard. Unless the partying in the city was really loud. I have no idea. This is These are things I don't think about um but yeah so it was really interesting to 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 sort of have that opening and then i was really intrigued by yeah his 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 failure to basically kill priam but i felt it was a bit unfinished just because it was like um he kind of announces himself and says you know i am the son of achilles blah blah blah, and he says
0: it because and and this the the he says like his internal monologue is this is what you do when you battle someone you announce who you are and i'm like oh honey you are just you are a child you're going by the playbook you've been taught Yeah, i mean
1: it's exactly what you'd expect from a 16 year old you know but it, it was just interesting how i kind of expected Priam to say something or do something um but the representation was just the like oh honey i'm so sorry and then he just like jumps on him i'm like oh you're not gonna oh okay um yeah, so the failure to like kill him quickly, but I love the description of, you know, he he was in a rage. He felt Achilles' blood running through his veins. And then suddenly he gets to this old frail king who looks like he's, you know, about to drop dead in 2 seconds anyway on his own. Um like the the anger drains away and then he doesn't have the strength and then it takes Priam basically like pissing him off to somehow enable him, you know, it was just like it's it's almost very moving. I'm like, because I, I, you know, I was like, okay, well. um, It's not going to be easy to kill an old man, a frail old man. Um, You know, then again, I'm not an epic Greek warrior. I'm not the son of Achilles. But just considering modern warfare, it's not probably easy to kill an old man who's, like, helpless. Because apparently this Prime, unlike all the other adaptations where you have, like, them valiantly making the last stand with the sword or the, you know, strap on my armor one last time. No, it's like, he's just... He's unarmed and he just kind of stands there and yeah. he's like,
0: Okay, I'm it gonna do it. says he's in his armor, but it looks like he's about to collapse from the weight of it. Oh, that's right. Like- well,
1: either way, it's like a bit you know, you would oh, expect yeah. kind of like a big duel or, or, or mm-hmm. some sort of valiant last stand.
0: There's zero fight in him,
1: there's nothing. I mean, it just like drains away and he's like, Okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, I was not expecting that. Um, So i did like the opening and then when it finally shifts to briseis we kind of pick up where the first novel ended um i think one thing i was really excited about though once we started getting to the camp um i think that well (laughs) you can kind of split the chapters based on which woman she goes woman she goes to see but um i don't know i i still don't know whether i enjoy the andromache or the Helen chapter, and the thing is, you never hear about Helen or from her after. And I love what she did with Helen, um although it did kind of bother me that she kind of kept referring to her as, "Well, she's sleeping with Menelaus again, and now she's gone back to being Helen, queen of the Argives." And I'm like, "But wasn't? I mean, but I was like, why wouldn't you just call her Queen of Sparta? Because that's what she was, especially if she's like back with her crazy husband who is." yeah like sleeping with her again after uh he vowed to like have her stoned or that he would just murder her um and now he's acting like nothing has changed and um they have helen's like this helen is just so different from like our adaptations i mean we had the beautiful troy fall of a city where basically everyone dies and then she's like well you can take my body back but i don't my heart is here and i i loved paris and then, and this version is like oh yeah they um uh, i was raped and i didn't love paris really so, sort of um but then they had her like flirting with hector because hector had a flame for her um and just like the characterization of her went so far out of like what i was expecting
0: like were you as shocked as i was about the, her like characterization of helen I think Pat Barker does an excellent job of making Helen both extraordinarily manipulative from what we hear about her from everybody else, because everyone has something to say about Helen. And one of the recurring themes from the women of Troy that that Briseis goes and speaks to is that no one likes Helen. Everybody, everybody hates her. Everyone in the camp hates her. All of the women hate her. No one likes Helen. And you know what? fair enough, not, not going to blame or judge for that. But while making her a manipulative survivor, cause I, I think that's possibly what, what we're going for here, the chapter where Helen actually makes an appearance and speaks for herself, Pat does an excellent job of actually making her sympathetic, um, not massively so, but in a world where women have zero agency and really the only control they have is how they can influence the men in their lives through their looks through the children they they produce and because helen is the most beautiful of all women she has that power but at the moment it seems like it is working to her disadvantage she's still alive which i think is a testament a testimony to how she's able to control Menelaus but as Briseis talks to her she doesn't say it but Pat describes how her like her her veil falls down a little bit and you can see a ring of bruising around her neck and then uh she she stands in a particular way and and Briseis can see the bruising goes all the way down her torso so this is a heavily abused woman who. Yes, she's the cause of a war. Well, we could argue whether Helen is the cause of the war or of male pride is the cause of the war. But a war was fought over her. And now she is doing her best to literally just stay alive um, in a world where not only does everyone hate her, but she has no power, no authority on her own, like of herself. And... The only way she can stay alive is by keeping Menelaus sexually interested in her. But that sexual interest is apparently coming along with an awful lot of abuse. And Briseis, like her inner monologue says like, Menelaus is, is throttling her essentially while he fucks her. And that is, yes. And you, you kind of expect that kind of like, The other representations we've seen where he takes her back, clearly he's not happy. There's going to be a physical retribution going on there somehow. But I think what what Pat does, as with Silence of the Girls, she brings that implied or assumed trauma and slaps you in the face with it. Like, we're not going to be subtle. We're not going to be, like, there's no innuendo here. This is... This is abuse this is what's happening and you kind of have to deal with it and i think that again manages to make helen sympathetic and uh, we've said before like helen is is generally not someone either of us enjoy or sympathize with an awful lot this helen i don't like her but i do sympathize with her
2: which
1: is a feat in itself i suppose because no other adaptation that we've seen so far i mean really i, I... I just don't like her and I don't really find mm-hmm. her at all uh sim- I mean the the closest I suppose I got was fall of the city but
0: even then I was mm-hmm. still just like I don't like you You're she was just- yeah she was still very irritating and and very very much like and and we said it when we went through when we went through the series but she's very I can't believe all these bad things are happening because of me you can fix it sweetheart you can fix it and it's made clear that she could just walk out of the city and go home and and that is something that is also said by one of the other women she could have left so you're kind of left wondering why she didn't did she love paris did she just think that she was choosing the winning side who knows i suspect we won't get an answer to that um she's just she's just like picking a ton of gray like everything about her
1: Uh, I like it sounds like so bad and so weird, but I don't know why I've just been in this funny headspace, but I'm like, I just want to like sit her down and be like, honey, your aura is gray. You got to fix this because I don't know what this is about. Okay. Like your aura is so gray. Get over it. (laughs) So I don't know why I'm thinking about auras. I'm not that kind of a person normally, but I was just like, okay, I, I can't like as I'm, you know, listening to her talk or being described i'm just like oh my god like i yes i feel bad because i'm like obviously she has no power and to blame a whole war on just her is unfair
0: because (laughs) as we've as we've established and like menelaus isn't just blaming the war on her he's blaming the breakdown of his relationship with his brother on her i'm like dude that's you that is all you he's like agamemnon is pissed because you've taken helen back he's like that was your choice she just gets a lot of shit and like
1: I understand that but I'm also like okay but as we've established as well Paris also didn't have to well depending on adaptation he didn't have to take her you know you could have been like okay we'll have a sexy fling while I'm here on diplomacy and then I'm gonna go across the sea bye-bye um so yeah I was like well whether she went of her own volition or was like convinced to go whatever but i'm like she gets the blame no one talks about Paris. everyone's like no it's helen for being this um you know traitor sort of slag i don't know like it's just
0: um so in in that regard i do feel bad i will be interested to see in the rest of the second half of the book if there's a reason given for her leaving because most other adaptations have kind of at least touched on it and we've not got there excuse me we've not got there with this one
2: Although I don't
1: know. Cause the, the way that the first half went, I'm kind of like, I feel like we're just going to get one little thing from each woman. And I don't really think they're going to, I would love to actually hear from Helen again. I think because she's put a chapter already, like there is an opening to hear more from Helen's own words or to do more with her. I'm just not sure that she, there's enough room within what's written. So, um, but I would love to to see more of her. Um, But it's, interesting because I was kind of as I was reading her or listening to her I was kind of contrasting it with what happened to Andromache right? Yes we should talk about her. because it, it's like super different because also again with like Pat Barker sort of changing certain things depending on how she wants to portray them for her narrative um, you know Andromache also gets a lot of things said about her in addition to hearing from her um so it was quite interesting to hear how the description of her marriage to hector is not like anything else we've read or seen i mean uh because i think in in this one they said she was like 16 and he was like 35 or he was like in his mid-30s or whatever and so they're like oh yes and um you know she married him and he was always respectful but also he had all these concubines and this that, and the other thing was mostly in love with helen and i was like well that's really different from anything because every other adaptation is like no he treasured and adored andromache and
0: she was his equal partner and yeah
1: exactly and it's like you know he's the the heir thus on the you know whatever um, so I was quite shocked to hear this different representation of her. And like, she's already a very sympathetic person, but like, this made me
0: actually feel worse for her. And especially coming off of Troy fall of a city, the Andromache in that she's so strong, she's so set in who she is and what she wants. And she is Hector's equal that they're, they're a pair. They come, they come as a team and having having that and then contrasting it to the andromache we get here who is very she she feels young still she feels young and she's described as like pale and quiet and as you would be deeply traumatized by everything that's happened to her and it's like there's no fight left in her anymore and it's yeah very very different
1: i don't know like do, do you feel yourself like feeling more sympathy or just like sympathy is the same
0: i think it was sympathy in a different way because with again go if we go back to fall of a city that woman loses her husband who is clearly the love of her life and her child and her home and the child they they make such a big deal of the difficulties they've had conceiving and how much this baby is wanted so that is tragic in and of itself this Andromache, i don't feel like there's the same mourning for the husband because their relationship is not portrayed as anything like the same but it i feel like it makes the loss of a cynax so much more poignant because he was everything she had and now she has just nothing and um she's more because it's the aftermath there's there's obviously a different focus to fall of a city but there's much more of a thing made of andromache being given to pyrrhus who she tells briseis killed her son asked to kill her son as a reward which is all kinds of fucked up but asked to kill her baby and now she's stuck with the bastards and he i mean is a 16 year old kid who's got some of his own issues going on and like cause her to have sex with him once and it sounds like it didn't go terribly well i mean she's she comes out of it not brutalized but still having been raped um and and she like this this is her life now and yeah it's sympathy for both but sympathy in in slightly different places i think
1: Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then I'm not trying to remember, I can't remember the sequence. I had to just, re- just listen to it so fast, but was
0: Hecuba next? Um, yeah. Cause Andromache and, 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 Hecuba, the, the stories kind of are interspersed between each other. So there's, there's Andromache stuff, then Hecuba, then Andromache, but yeah, but she's again, very different to, Everything. I mean, as opposed to Troy, the two thousand and four movie, she actually exists, which is delightful. Uh, always, always a good thing to see characters existing when they should. But she's so different from the Fall of a City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she's an old lady, and she's an imperious old lady. She sounds fantastic and is plotting to try and kill Helen, which is like. but but
1: also she's like she's not even like the fall of a city one because it's like that one she's described as like you know uh troy is this like super egalitarian more Mm -hmm. not okay slightly more egalitarian with its women if they're royal women Mm -hmm. you know like not slaves and stuff but um because because in fall of a city she's presented kind of as basically the the partner and the counterweight to Priam, and she really like her her opinion mattered and he wouldn't do anything without kind of consulting her and in this one you kind of hear like um a very different story like he like there was an age gap i think between them as well um but like she would beguile him. And so being married for so long, like he definitely always kept her around,
0: even though he had a horde of other concubines and stuff. They seem, they seem to have still had that same, I mean, I think as maybe as inevitable if you're well, not necessarily inevitable, unsurprising if you're married for so long and and you have a amicable relationship, let's, let's start there. But the end result of Priam dying—you have that Hecuba's reaction in *In Fall of a City* is obviously one of devastation. But then, in *The Women of Troy*, when Hecuba manages to get to the beach, and Pat Barker describes it beautifully, she is like they're on the beach. It's they're being blasted with this wind and sea spray, and she just like starts mourning and screaming and shouting for her lost family and just yelling Briam's name. And it, her response brings all of the other Trojan women out of the camp to mourn with her. And it's, it was very powerful for me because in, in the ancient world, it's again, painting very broad brush strokes here. It is very common for mourning to be a woman's, responsibility and to be women's work you get women like smearing their faces with ashes crying yelling screaming carrying on all this stuff so this is very much in keeping with what you would expect but seeing it or having it described on such a personal level as seeing this woman mourning for her husband and for all of the children she has lost and for her home it was it was very um well-written and moving, and I think gave a, a really good, um, a, a, it, it paints a really realistic picture of, of how Hecuba feels, I think.
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, they still have her talking about Polyxena, um, mm-hmm. you know, being sacrificed and given over to Pyrrhus and, <clears throat> You know, most adaptations don't really include Polyxena. They're just kind of like, okay, well, she's unimportant, so... Go- um Yeah, although I was... I, it, it. Yeah, she was interesting to, to, to read or to hear. Because um, she was a lot more calculating than I thought. I love how sassy she is. Um Like... She's kind of like, oh, Perseus, you've, like, done well for yourself. Um, and then, actually, I really loved her interactions with Calchas because, basically, from Calchas's point of view, when it switches kind of to him for a little bit, you know, he's all like, well, she's a slave, essentially. She lives in a hovel. She's old. She's Odysseus' prisoner. She's got, like, nothing. And I don't have to, like, show her this deference that, she had as the queen and in her mind she's like no i'm still your queen like you should still bow to me on the way out and so i love this the the hilarity of him kind of figuring out like he goes and talks to her and then like bows and starts to sort of walk out of the room backwards and then he's like wait what the hell am i doing like you know like and then you it, she's described as basically sort of chuckling as he's like suddenly making up his mind to not do this deferential thing. Um, And then it was really interesting how, um, yeah, she really, um, she's in this place and then suddenly, you know, Berseus goes in and she's like, yeah, I want to see my daughter. And she's like, yeah, good luck. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Cassandra, she's, she's mentioned a lot in the early, early books, isn't she? Like way more than, before but but they still kind of allude to the fact that like she's still babbling about prophecies i loved the part about the the she's afraid of nets
0: yeah yeah um, and always has been you know like knowing yeah, what happens back like, Agamemnon. yeah
1: yeah but also i think in in classic pat barker style where things are are viscerally told um she there's this one sequence where she's essentially describing how how the fear goes back and like even when she was a child and they would put the nets over to um you know help the kids not get bitten up by bugs at night and then when she viscerously talking about how she refused this net and then she has sat cassandra down and counted 47 mosquito bites and the fact that she was like writhing in agony during the day and still refuses the the net i was that got me because i was like okay i'm just having all goosebumps all over now because i i'm that one person in my family who the bugs love and like so i could go out in any time basically and you know i'll be out for 15 minutes and i'll come back with like 20 bug bites and like my dad or whatever will have like none um it doesn't matter like what I'm wearing what I'm doing I would just be eaten and so having that sort of brought to the fore so viscerally um that really got a reaction out of me I was like oh shit man that's me like I'd be the one with 47 bites and like knowing how uncomfortable and terrible that is I, I I'm not sure I'd be refusing that net like I think I would take the net but then again I'm not cursed with foresight so uh, yeah,
0: you know, um, and we yeah, do we it, do then see Cassandra after Briseis talks to Hecuba about her. We do get to see her, which is is cool because I don't I don't think there are really any other adaptations that have. Well, no she she appears in she appears in them, but like, like especially with Fall of a City, it's she's so damaged that there's not a lot no we 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 heard from or saw her in uh ships, didn't we? yeah, but it wasn't I feel like we got a lot more of non crazy or non prophesying cassandra and and her had her, her chapter in women of Troy isn't isn't huge, but like she gives an account of of her rape and her relationship with her mother and and I feel like there was more lucidity here, so you get a feeling more for who she is rather than just this plot device who um, yells about prophecies. That's true.
1: Although, do we think that it's really like down to what adaptation and what is the goal of the author because it's like here clearly we're trying to talk about and go into the stories of the women specifically of Troy. so obviously cassandra as a survivor would be um on that list versus a different adaptation that's like not centered on the women so they like like it just doesn't really make sense like i'm just trying to think to like you know fall of a city like wh- where would we put in a thing about her and and have it not sort of stand out as
0: weird or awkward, you know? Oh yeah, sure. And I, I think I think one of the strengths of having, or one of the the things you can do when you're looking specifically at the, at the aftermath is that in I feel like in the Iliad, so much of Cassandra is just this harbinger of doom, and she's she, like she doesn't do a whole lot and there's so much more story focused around other people The the strength of doing an like an after story essentially is that there's not a lot going on plot wise they're sitting mm. on a beach like they've been sitting on a beach for half the book so it gives you a lot more room to develop these characters who don't necessarily have a lot to say in 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 the war itself so i yeah no i, I think that's that's definitely something that this book has space for that maybe others haven't Wouldn't necessarily what, yeah one of yeah. again going going with pat Barker's, um unique brutal perspective on things i found it um one of the things that really stood out to me about cassandra's account of her rape was her saying like i was on my period mm. and that like that didn't stop him and that's something that i wouldn't even have wanted my sister like i wouldn't even have, have been comfortable speaking with my sister about and this man just completely ignores it and and uh, and does what the hell he wants and it was just the shortest of sentences but i feel like that's something that you wouldn't you probably wouldn't get from a male author or a male filmmaker and it was a really interesting tiny added dimension for me.
2: Yeah, no, I think um I think you're right. We definitely wouldn't go- wouldn't have gotten it from a a male storyteller. Um it, it it adds a layer of depth to the harrowing sort of vibe that Pat Barker obviously wants to go into because she does not shy away from these like really sort of horrifyingly blatant things the the only thing that 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 sort of like i don't want to say it like took away from because it didn't like it didn't take away from anything that's that's like not the right way but basically just kind of thinking from like a, a very contemporary perspective um like just like being real like a ton of women have sex on their period like it's not that big of a deal and so just just because of like that and coming from this contemporary thing i was kind of like well okay well like taking her when she's on her period in and of itself like that's not like strange it's not you know something completely unexpected i mean you know who knows some guys even today are like ew no i don't want it it's blood it's whatever you know and some are like i don't fucking care so i guess just like in and it of itself um i was like okay well that's unfortunate that she was on it but mm-hmm. definitely to me i don't see it as like a big deterrent just considering a lot of people do it anyway but i guess it does add a dimension to like show her innocence because if she really is you know like a young girl you know we've been there i you know like any young girl could probably be like oh yeah like in my first you know year or two of having my period you're still not like comfortable with it you're still a, a bit shy or mm-hmm. you know not not necessarily like embarrassed but you're just shy or you know um whatever so like yeah having this foreign man who's very violent and terrible coming in when you're still coming to terms with this really super personal thing of yours um and, and ignoring it anyway you know because i'm like okay fine well um yeah i suppose like you know it, it it, yeah um what what young girl who's on her like first year i'm gonna assume she's like in her first year of her period or something like that so like but yeah like what young girl in her first year of her period would be like yep i'm cool let's have sex during my period like this is totally normal like no, no girl is gonna be like yeah so no i i i, I kind of see from from both sides um but it does add a, a so I dimension think,
0: i think what i was king off of and i i don't know a lot about purity culture or purity laws in ancient greece but i know that in some cultures and some ancient cultures you do not have sex with a woman when she's on her period for like religious purity essentially and there are like rites that you have to go through after your period to make sure that you are like clean or cleansed or whatever the hell patriarchal terminology we're using. So I what what was going through my my brain when when I came across that bit was not only is it a violation of her personal bodily autonomy, it's also a violation of cultural religious norms. I don't know if it actually is because I'm not familiar enough with with the time period, but that's kind of what what I was getting from that
2: um i would say and, and again i'm not an expert in either this time period or on purity like I, yeah that's not what i studied but i would just say like based on what i do know of ancient greece just generally you know these were some of the more sexually liberated people who i feel like wouldn't you know like like to me they wouldn't care as much as like August in Rome, I mean, you know, Augustus came in and he was like, oh my God, you are all salacious and horrible. And now I must make you proper. And, you know, like he freaking did all that shit to his own sister, Julia, because she was too promiscuous. And he was like, oh, it's such a such a shame. So um, and then I feel like in the Middle East, perhaps, you know, they would put a higher value on religious purity, stuff like that. Because uh, I, mean, I know that the, the Greeks would often, you know, I mean, They dressed in, like, you know, freaking skirts and dresses, right, Um, togas. So um, because I remember during the Persian Wars, you would often hear that, like, you know, the Greeks found the Persians wearing pants to be strange. Like, why would you cover up your body? Like, what is wrong with seeing skin? You know, so it's just like, okay, maybe if this were in, like, Persia or something or Rome after Augustus, um, that would be a much bigger deal, but I feel like th- especially this early in Greece, I mean, it's a valid point, And especially if we're going to think about it from a like a more modern perspective, in addition to how the ancient world would have seen it, um I think it's a completely valid and a really good point to bring up because I, you know, maybe it's because of my knowledge of Greece in what I studied that that I didn't think of it the way you did. But I think it's it's equally valid because that is like totally a thing that could have been you know a thing um but yeah
0: yeah i don't know we should talk about because we really haven't touched on briseis Mm. and how she is running interacting with the slave women the new slave women in the camp Mm. because that was a really interesting dynamic that i hadn't thought about and wasn't expecting and i wanted to know what your thoughts are on it
2: yeah well and 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 actually i do want to throw in as well her account of her experience being pregnant because that i think that hit me almost harder than her relationship with the the slaves because as she's trying to come to terms with her own like because i think who was it was like andromache or something who was basically just made a very point poignant comment and said like how are we supposed to love their children yeah exactly which really struck me because i'm like well I mean, yeah, okay, they fathered it, but I'm like, but you're the one who had to carry the child for nine months. Like, it's it's growing in you, so, like, you know, what we're taught about, like, unconditional love for a child. I mean, maybe, look, it's probably different if you've been raped. Like, it well, not probably. It is different, but I feel like in that time when they didn't have the agency to just, you know, go out to their local Planned Parenthood and, you know, get get it taken care of and they're trapped in this world where like they have no power and so they're expected to have the child so in that time period you can't just be like no i don't want it i was raped it's not my responsibility no this is like still your child and it is pretty much your shield against stuff and so she she talks about this child being her shield like she talks very you know much about how she would have been sold off as one of achilles funeral game prizes if she hadn't been pregnant and it's the only reason that she was able to survive and and be married off and become a woman sort of with any agency more power um but it, it was very striking to hear her talk about you know oh it's like a parasite it's in me but i hate it and it's leeching what it needs off of me as it's also being my shield and so that was really striking for me because jokingly in my own life you know i'm kind of like i don't want to be pregnant i don't want to put my body through that i just think it would be a terrible experience I'm, i'm happy to adopt kids right so hearing that it was kind of like it was kind of like justifying my own preconceptions about the experience but i'm curious to hear from you about it because you chose to have your children and obviously like wonderful things so you know not everyone thinks about it the way i do so I, I was very interested to hear like what you think about her own sort of coming to terms with the fact that she's pregnant with this thing that she basically calls a parasite leeching on her.
0: yeah i very very sympathetic honestly um pregnancy is hard i had three relatively easy pregnancies even so i've, I've had twins that was harder but i was i was very lucky i'm I'm a very healthy person. My body deals pretty well with being pregnant, but it's hard, and it's something you can never escape. You can't sleep. Oftentimes, you you either want to eat everything or you don't want to eat anything at all. So that's a whole exciting thing. You're constantly exhausted, and you just you can't get comfortable. And that's just like the physical stuff. Like going up and downstairs is hard, and getting up and walking is hard, and I had all of that and I had the comfort of knowing that these were children I wanted and this was planned. This was something my husband and I were doing deliberately and I had a say in that and I could have very easily said, I don't want children or I want one child and that would have been okay. There wouldn't have been repercussions for me and the thought of being pregnant against my will and being forced to carry a child's term against my will it's a form of assault i i truly believe that and to get as i'm sure some people will view it political and woke i think what's going on in the us and in other parts of the world with abortion access is criminal and a form of assault against women because no one should ever be forced to carry a child that they do not want, because it is invasive, it is physically, emotionally, mentally hard, it changes your brain's chemistry permanently, it changes your body's makeup permanently, and it should be a choice that the person with the uterus carrying the child makes. No one can make that choice for you. Period. Ever. Absolutely not. So having having Briseis and Andromache talking about how do you, like, how do you do this? How do you love a child that you don't want, that is born of rape, that is the the child of the man who killed your husband, killed your children, destroyed your whole entire world? How How do you do that? And logically, right, you know that the, the babies, the fetuses are innocent. They have no responsibility and it's like it's, it's not their fault but as someone who's been through all of that how do you reconcile what's going on inside your body that you have no say over with the child that will eventually be there and that you're going to have to raise and it may have been easier for um Aristocratic women who had wet nurses and, and servants and, and people to help with that kind of thing. But that that wouldn't have been the reality for everybody. And Brissay is kind of trying to come to terms with a pregnancy that she doesn't want and feeling like, and it, it kind of is very subtly woven in throughout the story, how everyone else is reacting to her pregnancy. And she says that men like reach out and touch her belly because she's carrying achilles child and she says that she's sure that the men are are convinced that she must be so thrilled to be the chosen woman who gets to carry achilles child And, and like the only worth she has is as the bearer of achilles kid and on the one hand it's kind of nice because no one's groping her anymore which is great but on the other hand the only value she has is because she has a uterus and and she's pregnant with a famous man's child. and it's it's very interesting and I think very well done and I think she
2: says she's a casket, right? Like she's a casket with a child or something
0: very powerful, yeah. yeah, yeah, no i I really appreciated Pat Barker going into that, and I think having that conversation be between Andromache. And Briseis was a, a really good, good choice.
2: Because you know, they're both in such unique uh, positions, because we have Briseis, who basically Achilles killed her husband and her brothers, and now she's having his child, and she says, you know, like, um, the Myrmidons are more excited about this than I am, because I feel like it's the Myrmidon's child, not my child. But then you then have Andromache, who's not, as of yet, pregnant, but you know that she's the property of the man who killed her husband and then threw her son off the wall. Um, I'm like, well, there's actually, I mean, I, I'm not about to start comparing what's worse, you know, killing your husband, throwing a child off the wall versus killing your, your husband and brothers, you know? Um, but yeah, so I'm just like, they're both in these unique positions, obviously different, but, it, but um, I just, I really appreciate it. Cause I think it's, something we don't talk about, it's taboo, and you kind of just beat around the bush. Yeah,
0: and I feel like so often as as well when this kind of thing pops up in literature, being pregnant is something to take comfort from, right? It's portrayed as, oh, I had this horrible traumatic thing happen to me, but at least I get a baby (laughs) and something to love, and oh, yay. And for some women, I'm sure, I'm sure that is true. But it was really refreshing to see the opposite, and I feel more realistic or more honest. Maybe. No, it is so.
2: more honest because I mean, even in our own culture, bouncing off what you were talking about, um, that's literally the excuse that the pro-life movement uses, which is, oh, you've been raped. Oh, you've been this or that or whatever happened. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. They're like, you need to rejoice because you've been gifted with this beautiful little life and, and you yeah. need to raise it. And and look, you get to like be a blank
0: slate. And something like, good has come out of something horrific. And you're like, well, I don't want a child. This is a lifelong (laughs) commitment that I didn't choose, that I do not want, and I might die during childbirth. So you know what? Actually, no. But yeah, like
2: it's, you know, they always say, it's a gift, a child is never a burden. It's a gift. And I'm like, you know what? No, it feels like a fucking anchor around your neck, unless you want to do, and the thing that it's like, you know, it's one thing if something bad happens, but at least you might have like a supportive partner or something who's like willing to help. These women didn't have that. These women were like got no one, yeah. I don't have a choice. I don't have a partner who's gonna be stepping up and you know helping mommy get around. No, this is like, oh, haha, that sucks for you. It's a gift um that you have to take care of on your own. Good luck. So no, um I, I definitely um I, I think it was very realistic and I really appreciate this take on it. Because as someone who never wants to have her own children, I want children. I just don't want my own. Um even with like a supportive partner in my life, I I would definitely be one of those, like if I somehow accidentally got pregnant, you know, and people are like, Oh, it's like joy, what a gift. I'd be like, No, it's not. It's still a fucking anchor. And I no. So no, I I very much appreciated it. Um and and you know, I also then bouncing into lastly just you know her relationship with the other slave women um that i thought was really realistic as well because i do like the portrayal of kind of this um sense of guilt that like survivor's guilt basically that um yeah you know, it would be so easy for Briseis as someone who kind of made it, she got married off. And so now she has privilege. Um, and she she does make a big deal about talking about, you know, the this this girl she has who has to follow her. She doesn't want to call her her slave. But she says, you know, well, I, I need a chaperone. But she acts like a slave. And even when she talks to her other friend, she's like, Oh, is this your slave girl? you your handmaid? She's like, No,
1: she's not. And then no, she's it's
0: not. Like- well, actually, sorry it really she really is like you're her owner i mean she may technically belong to your husband or to your husband's boss but
2: it was a bit harrowing to hear like this account where she wants to bond she wants to try to make overtures and so she tries to like slow down at one point to walk near her but then she slows down too much so then she like maintains the distance and she's like you know what this is just not working like okay um yeah I've, i felt real bad like you want to try to solve really complex dynamic word. yeah because it's like you're yeah. trying to salvage some of like i was because she's like i sympathize like i was where you were so you should turn to me or i hope you would turn to me for comfort because i can give you mm-hmm. advice about surviving when they're like i i'm
0: not interested you I, yeah I, like i can't trust you actually sorry you're you're married to my owner or you're not you you're not someone i can trust she's like you
2: she's like you may have been where i was but you're not now and i'm i'm sure that kind of affects the whole like well you made it but i'm never going to so i might as well just not talk to you about it because i it's almost like a false hope type of thing yeah Um,
0: and and i think and something that briseis does bring up semi-regularly is that she was i can't believe i'm saying this she was lucky because she was Achilles' favorite, and that gave her a status, even as a slave, that gave her a status above what any of the women in the camp currently have, and then she was like, elevated to, to free Greek, in inverted commas, wife, which is a fate that probably none of those women will get. I mean, we know that, I mean, maybe, maybe further down the road, Andromache, but... Generally, a lot of the women in that camp are going to stay slaves. They don't have a path out and it's, it's not really like how do you how do you form a friendship with your mistress essentially? Is it wise to even do that? So I think there's a lot of self-preservation going on there on in the part of the, the other women and i I really appreciate Brose trying so hard. Totally fits with her character in the way that she cares for Andromache after her first night with Pyrrhus and continues to care for her. And I, I, th- I think that a lot of that dynamic is because of a status thing. I think that's an added layer of of, of complexity in the whole in the whole relationship with Amina with with the maid. She's not royal. Briseis was royalty. She was aristocracy. Andromache was royalty, she was aristocracy, there was an equality there to begin with. And while Briseis is now not a slave anymore, she and Andromache is still on much closer to the same level. So I think it's probably much easier for Andromache to take the care and the love and the the support that Briseis is offering. And, and also because I think Andromache probably has that path out, like marriage to a, a Greek warrior is far more likely for her than for the other women in the camp so that might play into it as well Uh,
2: yeah well and and one of the things i did want to kind of emphasize was also i think what pat barker does really well is you know we hear about and someone will sort of mention in like a buzz buzzword way like bonds of female friendship in times of you know great adversity or whatever um But no one kind of knows what that means usually. And if they do try to guess, they're like, oh, that's just like women bonding and being friends, right? And I mean, I guess sometimes sure, but no, what I love is that like, you could technically use that to describe that like this book is basically an exploration of the ties that bind women in very different positions which I really appreciate because I'm like, yeah, they they are all women. They all have to kind of find a way to coexist and live the situations. But but like exploring all these different relationships when they all kind of started in similar-ish positions to now it's very uneven in this world that they really don't have agency or say. And how do you navigate your relationship with the other women that you're basically forced to be with um, when some are closer than others um and so yeah i guess if i was like describing the the book you know in a in a buzzy s- sentence you know i'd be like yeah it's exploring bonds of female friendship or about female bonds from unequal places um in
0: times of trauma yeah what do you want to see in the second half of the book
2: you know I don't even know what I'm expecting because the the first half was so different than what I thought it would be because I thought my, my initial thoughts were when I just look at the cover. It's Women of Troy. Uh, I figured that we would get sort of like a – I thought it would be like a thousand ships where the women would go and end up in their respective situations, and I thought that we would just hear – what happened to them i did not expect it to still be on the beaches of troy um and all of them together so i'm interested to see does the whole book take place right here and if so like that does kind of mess with my idea of a timeline for when the Greeks sacked and left troy and um yeah so i'm like i'm really excited to see you know will the pregnancies unfold and so will both Perseus and possibly andromache like will they have their children here which would imply that you know they're there for like nine plus months each like another year like um because you know so much time is spent describing this sense of i don't want it and also the army wants it and cherishes me so i i would like to see the dynamic once the, the child is born and like develop how she feels about this child because i i hope there's some kind of resolution that would speak to people like me who don't want you know my own biological children but also something that would then speak to women who did choose to have their own children and and see how her relationship kind of goes um i think that's pretty important and then obviously not to say that the other women aren't equally as important but since brise is kind of is the main character and um and since Andromache is in a similar-ish position, it sounds like I think I'm most interested in hearing their stories. I mean, Hecuba's fun, kind of as fun as one can be, but uh, in, in the situation, um, but they do say she's like old and frail and close to death, and so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it'll it'll be good, whatever the, the however it unfolds. But I'm kind of less interested, sad to say, in that. Um, so yeah, I just I'm I'm more invested in certain stories than others, but um and and yeah, maybe the developing of of her rela- of Briseis's relationship with the the slaves. And and again, I hope to hear from Helen again. What about you?
0: So I I would like to hear more from Helen. Um I don't logistically I don't know how that will work because Briseis kind of snuck in the first time. And Helen is so widely disliked that her going in a second might cause problems socially, if we can say that for Briseis. I want to see what happens with Pyrrhus because where we left it, he has a band of men from Scyros with him who are making trouble with the Myrmidons. And he's supposed to be leader of the Myrmidons, but he's like egging these young men from Scyros on. So I want to see what happens with him, where he goes. I mm-hmm. desperately want Briseis to have some kind of peace at the end. I don't know that she'll get it. I don't know that it's possible, but I'm going to hope that there is something there after all of this horrificness. I mean, that she has some kind, yeah. of yeah. Um, okay.
2: okay, mini prediction though. So I guess we'll do see. Do you think that she will change her mind and eventually, like, she'll so like accept and love this child, or do you think that she has so much hate and resentment toward the situation? that she's not going to actually end up liking this child?
0: I don't know. I think it could go either way. Um I think it could be a, thank God I'm not pregnant anymore. Here's a wet nurse. Please take this child away from me. It could also end up being a, I have nothing of my own. And... This little person is mine, and this is the only relationship, maybe that right now I can rely on. Okay, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean,
2: it looks from the surface, from like, the, the way that she's talking about how much she really does not feel like it's hers. It's the army's. Everyone feels entitled to it, so she's like more than happy to like not care. But but also she uses it as a shield. So I feel like she would want to step up and take ownership, if anything, to defend her own position. But I feel like then that would... But I feel like then it's like she, she'll she take ownership of that's the child, but not because point. she loves yeah. it, but because she... ...needs it, which is not a good spot. Yeah, so... Okay, well, that's kind of a downer to end
0: on, but... um. <laughs> In all honesty, it's Pat Barker. It's depressing as fuck. It's beautifully written, but my yeah. God, I am expecting to cry before I end this book.
2: Yeah, I was like, you know, why don't, like like it's very good and it's very great for analysis, but you know what? I don't feel happy when I analyze or read her books. Um, I just, it's not a pleasant experience reading her book. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so that's what we think. Yeah. Tell us what you guys think, you know, drop us an email or or whatever, you know, say hi on social media and um, come back and hear uh, what we think of part two uh, next week. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.